Welcome to Three Things. And I'm absolutely delighted that our guest today is Andy Coulson. Andy is the definition of resilience and proof of the theory that in life, one should always keep going. A former director of communications at 10 Downing Street, working with the then Prime Minister, David Cameron, Andy was also lead strategist in the Conservative Party's successful 2010 UK general election campaign. Prior to politics, Andy was editor of the News of the World and had a 20-year career in senior media editorial roles. Described today as a trusted advisor to global CEOs, entrepreneurs and philanthropists, Andy now runs Coulson Partners, a fast-growing corporate strategy and communications firm based in central London. Amidst his success, he has also experienced past personal challenges that very few could even begin to imagine, serving just under five months in prison for conspiracy to intercept voicemails. In this Three Things podcast, Andy will discuss with us the advice he now gives CEOs in 2021, what trends he sees ahead for the media, what he learned when in prison, and how he found the strength to keep going. Andy. Hello. Charles, thank you so much. Great to be with you. And thank you for that intro. Not at all. Did I get most of it right? I'll send the check. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just kick right off. What's keeping you busy these days? Work is, work is busy. We work with clients across a whole range of different sectors, manufacturing, biotech, retail, and others. So the work continues to be sort of very varied for us. Yeah. And the issues that we're there to help with are, are very different. But yeah. there's a commonality, isn't there? Of course, with COVID, sure. which is still impacting business significantly. You know, it's a different phase of the crisis now. But the the impact it's having, you know, on the workforce from labor shortages through to getting people back into the workplace, our supply chains are very difficult. Let's suppose you were doing your former job at number 10. What do you think mm-hmm. today, you know, it's a fairly turbulent time, what would be top of your to-do list if you were running that show today? I mean, you know, my job was comms, obviously. So I I think I would be arguing internally for more consistency. Mm. I think it's important in politics at any time. Mm. But when you're asking people to limit their lives, as we are still doing, it's critical, really. And the government's done a great job in the UK in some very significant ways, not least with the vaccination programme, which has been a a sort of triumph, actually, of of strategic risk-taking. But we still see too much inconsistency. There's an example right now. It's been resolved with a U-turn, but total kind of self-harm, really. Here, the issue is is, is elsewhere in the world is isolation is is obviously causing huge problems, a range of different ways, not least for for business here as well. And now Health Secretary came down with COVID, and that meant, of course, that the Prime Minister had been in touch with him, Mm -hmm. also needed to isolate. And instead of isolating, what they decided was that they would be part of a new, the guinea pigs in a new kind of testing program. I saw that. I saw that. (laughs) Which was, you know, which demonstrated a total tin ear to where the public are right now on this. And of course, they were forced into a U-turn, and and now they're, I assume he's got his feet up at checkers. So if you... And again, this is not this show is not about politics, but from your professional point of view, if you were still sitting in that seat, what Mm. would your priority be as it comes to advising the senior politicians of the UK these days? My job when I was in number 10 was to, which is essentially what I do for my clients now, by the way, is is to be that kind of neutral voice in the room without an agenda, shut the door, and I'll tell you what I think. Yeah. And also let the principal let off steam, right? That is yeah. also a very valuable thing. And we, you know, we, as I say, we do that in the business now for our clients. It's, it's a very similar thing. And I also think, Charles, you know this, right? You work day in, day out in, in and around strategy with serious people. 
you know, you've got to have a view. Otherwise, why are you an advisor? And I think on the consistency piece, I think I'll be really clear on that. You've just got to keep things consistent. So you are advising, as you said, a, a broad portfolio of clients. If you're just really zooming out, what are the sort of reputate, obviously without naming any clients, but what are mm. the kind of reputational issues you're helping your clients manage these days? Are there any commonalities that you're observing? Yeah, I mean, we're all about sort of reputation with purpose, right? It's not about fame. It's not about kind of, although ego obviously is a big part in, in, in business as it is in, in, in every I other I don't know world. what you mean. Really? Ego? Business? Yeah, Get away. Yeah. But it's about, it's about, <laughs> it's, exactly. But it's about making sure you've got the right reputation to do the things you need yeah. to do and that you want to do. That's where we focus it. But the issues right now obviously are, you know, are quite practical, actually. There is, for one of our clients, you know, the workforce is incredibly important. Yeah. We're seeing proper issues now in this country yeah. around supply chain with no immediate solution on the horizon. But also, aside from COVID, running in parallel to it has been enormous cultural change. Yeah, We work with leaders of businesses, right? We're with the, the chairman, the CEO, or the chairwoman and the, the founders of businesses. And the cultural change that, that's kind of happening at such a pace at the moment across so many areas, not least making sure that you don't just succeed, but that you succeed in the right way. But this show is called Three Things, and it's the three things that our guests, if they could, would go back to tell their 21-year-old self. So what's, of the three, what is your first thing that you would go back and tell 21-year-old Andy Coulson? Well, the first thing, it's a horrible sort of cheesy bumper sticker, <laughs> but they're cheesy for a reason, right? And my first one, I think, would be gratitude is the attitude. Okay, crisis and i will get onto it you know i've had a reasonable amount in my life but you know crisis can really deliver a great gift to you mm. if you've got your eyes and ears open and if you're able to kind of get your head in the right place mm. and i honestly my attitude towards work has changed dramatically that simple sort of shift from oh god i've got to do this to <laughs> you know what i get to do this when I was 21, you know, I had a great time, right? You know, maybe we'll talk about newspapers. I had a, I had a fantastic mm. 20s, really exciting career. I was actually, I wasn't in politics at all in terms of journalism. I was a showbiz journalist. So I was flying around the world interviewing famous people. It couldn't have been more interesting and exciting. Sounds like in a really 20s. tough job. You must have hated no, it. was a tough job. It. it was a tough, those, that, in the days of when newspapers still had expenses as well. So, you know, you turned, you <laughs> I turned left those. on the plane. Hold on. What was that? <laughs> exactly. Great days. Great days. <laughs> I think what I'd say to myself at 21 do you know what this is a great life and work actually will be a big big part of your life let's just look a little bit backwards and you've had i think it's fair to say you said you know interesting and at times somewhat turbulent time and mm. you had your liberty taken away for a few months in terms of the the prison experience were yeah. there any things that you took away were there any surprises what are the non-obvious things that maybe you could share with us about that experience Funnily enough, it was my working life that got me into all sorts of trouble. Mm. But it was actually my working life that kind of got me through it as well. Okay. Because I'd spent so much time in and around crisis as a journalist, causing it, aside from anything else. And then in politics, managing it, that when it came to actually living it, my stress muscles, if you like, and I'm a mm. great believer that you need to be stress fit in life. Mm. The fashion at the moment is to run away from stress. I don't buy that at all. You need stress in your life you know, to be able to cope with difficult times. I was actually pretty able. And also it wasn't week one, you're in trouble, week two, you're in prison. I had, I had two and a half years before I got to trial. And then I had an eight and a half month trial 
So I'd been living with it for a very long time. And so by the time I got to prison, I had my head in the right place, really. The turning point for me was not going to prison. The turning point for me was when I was arrested for the second time. So yeah. I'm, you know, I'm already heading towards the first trial and I'm arrested for the second time by the Scottish police. I actually was acquitted in that trial, but I had another trial when I came out of prison. And when I was arrested on that day, I was at home. I got a knock on the door at six o'clock. I was driven to Scotland. I lived in South London, right? Seven and a half hours in the car, police outriders either side of the van into Govan police station, into a cell that's built for terrorists, actually. It's got one-way glass and it laces out your shoes and all the rest okay. of it. And I sat on that plastic mattress, and I've sat on a fair few plastic mattresses, I can tell you. I could write the Michelin Guide <laughs> to prison cells. And I just thought to myself, this is beyond parody. Yeah, You know, my life has now become so absurd that I've got no choice but to sort of surrender control, really. And that wasn't giving up, right? Because giving up is very, very different to surrendering control. But I just thought... But did you almost just go into like neutral gear and just say, look, I'm just going to go with the flow to a degree because... What I was able to do at that moment, and I really can sort of time it to that day, I just decided, you know, you have control of some things. You have control of the fact, mm. breathing in and I'm breathing out, right? I've got control of that. I've got absolute control of how I react to what's happening to me. But I have absolutely no control whatsoever of what's going to happen in terms of the, the next stage and the, even to get to the end of the day, right? I've, I've, I've totally lost control. of it. It's become utterly absurd. But at that point, you have to, as I say, it's very different to giving up, right? You know, surrendering control is not giving up. I was taken to a high security prison, Belmarsh which is straight out of central casting, I can tell you. That was a very, very kind of miserable place to be. But it was also quite fascinating. Mm. What was fascinating about it? I'm someone who was the editor of a, of a national newspaper. I've been around politics. I worked for the Conservative Party, whose views on prison reform, although they were more liberal under David, you know, obviously were fairly well known. So the irony of finding myself in prison was not lost on me. <laughs> I was fascinated by the process. It was a fairly dysfunctional time. Um, it was a, a summer where Belmarsh was between governors, the staff shortages as well. As a result, we were behind the door for 22, 23 hours a day. You're let out to have a walk and even the food, you'd get it off the server and take it back yeah. into the cell and the door would slam shut. It wasn't like that all the time, but it was like that pretty frequently. And that was dark because you're worrying about your family. Mm. And the biggest regret, actually, is that I've got three sons and I had my two older sons. I decided when I went into prison, I really do not want you coming to visit me when I'm in Belmarsh, which is where I expected to be, but very briefly. And I was told, well, because I shouldn't have been there, I should have been in an open prison pretty quickly, but it was just, you know, it just wasn't happening. And I talked to my wife about it and we said, actually, you can't go through this sentence without seeing the boys. They need to see that you're okay. Which is perfectly understandable, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah. And so they did. The two older boys came to see me. And it was literally a day, two days later that I was moved to an open prison. And I was furious about that because they should have told me. Because if they told me, then they would never have had to have that memory of seeing their dad sitting in a visiting room of a proper prison. And Belmarsh is a proper prison. But they laugh about it now. Right? It's still <laughs> it's a, something that when it comes up in conversation, which it does very, very infrequently. So what's your second thing? You're, you're going back to tell your 21-year-old self. The second thing for me is the underrated strategic value of a sense of humour. I didn't laugh my way through my troubles, I can tell you, but there were moments, you know, and I think there are moments in life when 
a belly laugh is is more effective than a battle plan, right? It will get you through very difficult moments. And you talk about dark moments, but on the day that I was actually sent to prison, I was at the old Bailey, uh, keep you there for the day. I was put in a prison van. And as I came out from an underground car park onto Newgate Street, it was a gloriously sunny day. And the sun was sort of streaming through the windows of this prison van. And you're in a sort of cell within the van. Right. And at that moment, I noticed that as the sun came through, I noticed that the windows were rose tinted. Okay. And I... <laughs> Like your spectacles, no doubt, right? <laughs> yeah, and I sort of thought to myself, Serco are famously average at security, but they're clearly masters of irony. That's very funny. And I couldn't help but find that funny, right? It's, I mean, it's gallows humour, but... What was the last thing that made you really laugh, Andy? You said belly laugh. In the last few days, was there anything that really you found funny? I mean, I can tell you something that I found funny right at the end of my experience, actually, because I went from Belmarsh to an open prison and I was sat on my bed and I was watching, because you get a television, right? And I was watching Ted. Okay. Not the high end kind of thought leadership. Sure. The Mark Wahlberg movie, right? <laughs> and at the beginning of that film, the narrator says something like, however big a splash you make in this world, whether you're Justin Bieber or a talking teddy bear, Eventually, eventually, no one will give a shit. <laughs> and I apologise for the. I apologise for, for the. No problem. I think we've got the uh, over eighteen button on this one, so no worries. AI <laughs> I found that funny, but also I think that's not a bad little piece of philosophy, actually, because in the end, that's the truth of it, right? And you've got to keep perspective. So no, I look for humour everywhere. I think it's massively undervalued. Well, this might be a good point then to talk about your time with the media. So looking back, you mentioned a bit earlier that it was some fun stuff, flights, celebrities, a lifestyle that many would be quite envious of. But looking back at your days, just two very simple questions. What did you love and what did you dislike? Being a reporter is a very different thing to being an editor. So the reporting life was fantastic, right? It was a great way to spend your 20s. I was incredibly, incredibly lucky. It was a sort of golden period for my kind of journalism at that. Great budgets. People wanted to deal with you and talk to you. It was just very exciting. As an editor, it's a different job, right? Because you're taking on the commercial responsibility of it. But I loved being an editor. I loved the campaigning aspect of it. We did a lot of good stuff very easy for me to sort of look back on my newspaper years and just sort of stick it all in the bin, right? Because it ended so badly. And I think that's always a temptation when you've been through a tough time. But I'm determined to remember the good times as well, because we did a lot of good work. Is there one campaign that in particular you're very proud of? Is there one that sort of stands out in your memory? Yeah, the campaign that I was proudest of followed 7-7. And it was a fight for greater compensation for people that were affected by that incident in London, because the government were very, very slow on their feet in the payouts. And we worked very hard across three home secretaries. So really stuck with it for a period of time and, and had a significant impact in the speed with which people received their payouts, but also the amount that they got. I was chuffed to bits with that. I should also say, though, Charles, while we're talking, it's sure. important to me that, that, that any conversation about the news of the world for me has to start with an apology, right? Because although I don't, I would always maintain that I didn't break the law. I got so much wrong. I made some terrible decisions and decisions that had impact on people's lives and couldn't be more sorry about that. But equally, as I say, I think it's really important to look at it in the whole. And my newspaper career, I was very lucky to have been working at a senior level at the time that I was. And I was also very lucky to be working for a company that 
was properly kind of meritocratic. No one ever stopped me in the corridor at News International and asked me where I went to school. Mm. There was none of that. It was, can you do the job and are you any good at it? Mm. And that was it. I was able to kind of rise up through that company as a result of that. Do you think the UK is ever going to change? Do you think that will always be a thing for us? Or do you think that, is it getting better in 2021? I think it's definitely getting better, but I think we've got an awfully long way to go. And it's not just about class, right? Obviously, it's about sex and it's about background more broadly. And there are enormous challenges ahead of us. But all I see is is progress. I think it's very easy, and this is what we do, right, is that we concentrate on the here and now. Very rarely do people kind of step back and look at the arc of progress, in my view. And the arc of progress, I think, is on so many fronts, right? Even we're living through COVID right now. But if you actually step back and look at some of the global health patterns over the course of the last 50 years, we're making incredible Mm. progress. Mm. If you want to pick a subject like female education, enormous progress when you look at the big picture. What we do, of course, is is tend to focus on the here and now. And that's how you get progress, of course. And I think there's a tremendous amount more to do, particularly in politics, I think. Still an awful lot more to do there. When you look around the cabinet table, I don't think it's as diverse or as mixed as it could be. But compare it to the cabinet table 10 years ago, undeniable progress, right? When we're talking about who's going to be the prime minister next in this country, right? Rishi Sunak is right up the top of that list right now. You know, I mean, it's interesting time. So before we get to your third thing, Andy, mm. just if we can take a lens looking five, 10 years ahead have you got any thoughts about where media is headed? And let's narrow it down to maybe to news. You know, any thoughts as to what the future looks like for the, the business of news? Yeah. The challenge for my old industry, obviously, is, is that print sales are only going one way and that they are working and have worked. This started, by the way, when I was still in newspapers. So this is they went up the mountain on it. Is how on earth do you monetize this stuff? And, and some people are finding good answers to that. There are some good products. This morning I was reading Washington Post, fantastic piece on the unraveling of Afghanistan after the American withdrawal, which you wouldn't find on television. You won't find that kind of analysis on any other kind of media. And here, the sun, which there's a fashion at the moment to say that tabloids have no place in our life. Well, the Matt Hancock story, which I'm sure you, you saw there, which was a seismic piece of journalism in terms of the UK landscape. Yeah. That came from the Sun newspaper, right? So I think it's dangerous to write off the value of our newspapers. Mm. But the challenge, obviously, is how on earth do they monetize this going forward when as soon as you stick it, obviously, online, it's gone. Everyone else has taken it and everyone else is adapting it and using it. I suspect with the Matt Hancock story, the Sun's actual ownership of that story, right? That window of opportunity to really make it yours and get all the value from it, I suspect, was, was not very long at all. My point is that if you then relate that to Google search, right, if you relate it to an algorithm, I suspect you'll find, if you look at the algorithm, that that the BBC's version of that, maybe even some other newspaper's version of that story, possibly ranks higher because of the way that Google works. Believe it or not, we're on to our third thing. So again, you're going back to 21-year-old Andy, and you can tell him your third thing that you've learned in these years since then, what would that third thing be? Okay, well, what I'd tell him is that you're going to have a dog in your life called Bob, <laughs> right? And, and, and I'm going to tell you that you need to be more Bob. I'll explain to you very quickly why. Please, we need context to this one. <laughs> when I came out of prison, my dog, Bob, is a Vizsla, gorgeous dog, super smart, ran at me, went absolutely bananas, 
It was a lovely moment for me, just as he'd done every time I walked through the door for the previous 10 years. Yeah? And then I had that period of getting ready for the Scottish trial. And actually, as I was at the airport, City Airport waiting to go to Edinburgh. I got a call from the vet to say that my dog had unfortunately got cancer and, and they weren't sure that there was much that they could do. And uh, if we've got non-dog lovers listening at this point, this is when they switch off, I've got to warn you. Okay. Uh, and I, I was asked recently whether or not I ever cried during my dramas. And I can tell you that that was the moment that I did, right, on the phone to the vet standing at City Airport. But the trial ended very well for me, as I mentioned to you, and I came back and Bob, in fact, had had an operation and was fighting, right? He was doing really well, climbed out of his bed and tried to make a fuss of me. And over the next few weeks, we spent proper time together. Mm. We were sort of recovering together, really. And I watched him dealing with his sort of life and death crisis. And just by being with me, being with Eloise, my wife, and our three yeah. sons, getting fitter, but also kind of flopping out in the sun occasionally. And when he was fit enough by... Honestly, I can't tell you, by running, towel wagging, you know, <laughs> straight out into the garden with the exact same level of enthusiasm every day, rain or shine, without judgment or bitterness. And that's really important, without yeah. bitterness, yeah. right? I just think he was setting me the most brilliant example of how I should live my life, really. A good mate of mine reckons that, that the key to life is to be the man your dog thinks you are. Whereas I would put it much more simply, I would simply say, be more Bob. Be more Bob and dodge the bitterness. Tell me what you like to do, Andy, when you're obviously, look, you're a very busy guy. I know business is going very well. And I also know just how absorbing our industry can be. It's not yeah. an industry that has a, you know, it's not like a shift, right? It's, everything stops at five. But what do you do yeah. for fun? What do you do when you're not working? What is it that you like to, to do? It's the things that, that I'm sure you get similar answers from others. It's all about family for me. Yeah. And having been separated from them for a, a short period of my life, I've got a proper appreciation for those moments. That's what life is all about for me. And I enjoy getting the balance of, of work and all that stuff that matters more uh, right. And I've sort of achieved that now, yeah. really. I'm really pleased. Through a fairly kind of winding road, right? <laughs> but I've, as I say, that's the gift that crisis gives you. It gives you an amazing sort of perspective on life. So... Family for me, sort of a more trivial answer would be Tottenham Hotspur Football Club. Fair enough. I carry that burden. Okay. <laughs> and I'm also part of the, I'm a man of a certain age who is fully enjoying the peloton. Yeah. But other than that, it's, the main thing for me is just having control of your life and being able to get that balance is, uh, you know, is a wonderful thing. So at the end of all of these, and this has been terrific, and I really would like to say thank you so much for finding the time. Um, well, it's been a pleasure. We always ask our three things guests one thing and that one thing is with the exception of food family all the basic sort of what i would call the the necessities of life mm. what's your one thing that you couldn't live without what is that thing that you would absolutely not be able to imagine having outside of your life i'm very clear that for the rest of my life i want control of it so I'm now unemployable in that sense. <laughs> I think me too, by the way. So no worries there. <laughs> I could never work for someone else now. And I don't, I could come off as a bit arrogant, I suppose. I just, and that's not what I mean. It's just that for me, life is long and life is incredibly short. It is both of those things. And the absolute key to it is having control of your life. So I know I couldn't do without that, really. I couldn't do without being in charge of my own destiny. I think destiny is a very good place maybe to pin this. We've traveled quite a journey. 
straight line, definitely not, Mr. Coulson. But I mm. think it's been fantastic. I would really like to say thank you. I'm looking at destiny. I'm looking at your three things. But I just want to say it's a fascinating chat. Andy Coulson, thank you so much for being a guest on Three Things. Oh, thanks for having me. So many thanks to my guest, Andy Coulson. I think it was a fascinating talk and a really interesting three things. Um, Andy also puts his experience to work on his own podcast, and you can find that at crisiswhatcrisis.com, where he interviews the survivors of all manner of crisis. It's fascinating. He has some very interesting guests, and it's really well worth a listen. So at Three Things, we're all about hearing from interesting people, and we're all about hearing their three things, the three things they would tell their younger self if they could. If you would like more details about Three Things, drop us a line, hello at threethings.asia. We will be dropping more shows over the next few weeks. We've got some other terrific guests coming up. So from all of us at Three Things, thanks again to Andy Coulson for a really great show, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. Thank you.